Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a look at some exciting research projects taking place in Syracuse. We'll hear about a simple saliva test that can tell whether someone has suffered a concussion. What we've been able to show is that these microRNAs are predictive of the severity of the injury, as well as the time course. Then we'll talk with the scientists who are building bone using stem cells and a 3D printer. In our case, we're hopeful that we can use CT imaging or MRI imaging to design these new bone structures. And we'll explore the connection a researcher found between aerial mosquito spraying and autism diagnoses. We can't be sure whether it's the pesticide exposure or is it the mosquito exposure. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse. But first, the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about three different pieces of research underway in Central New York. Two scientists will tell how they're using stem cells in a 3D printer to make replacement bone. Then we'll hear how one researcher found a possible connection between aerial mosquito spraying and autism. But first, we'll learn how a saliva sample can detect a concussion. A researcher from Upstate Medical University has found a way to identify concussions in children and predict the length of their recovery using a simple saliva test. Here to talk about his work is Associate Professor Frank Middleton, who divides his work among four departments, neuroscience and physiology, biochemistry and molecular biology, psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and pediatrics. Thank you, Dr. Middleton, for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Amber. Appreciate it. Now, I know that you collaborate with a professor from Penn State Hershey Medical Center on this project. How did the two of you come up with the idea of a saliva test that could identify concussions? That's a great question. So the researcher whom you're referring to is Dr. Stephen Hicks at Hershey Medical Center. And Steve and I first became involved in research together when he was actually completing his MD, PhD degree here at Upstate, and I was one of his faculty mentors. Steve decided that he was going to match in pediatrics and do his training uh, here at Upstate. And during his fourth year of medical school, um, I was fortunate to have the ability to convince Steve to come into the lab and start to engage in some research on a new class of molecules that the field of neuroscience, the field of molecular biology, had become interested in. And this class concerned microRNAs. Now, Steve's initial work in my lab focused on measurement of microRNAs in the serum of subjects, adult subjects, who actually had a history of alcohol abuse or alcoholism. And one of the tie-ins with that research and Steve's PhD uh, research is the fact that um, fetal alcohol exposure is a prominent risk factor for autism spectrum disorder. So Steve and I actually thought it would be very appropriate for us to consider trying to measure these microRNAs in children who were believed to have autism spectrum disorder, whether they 
were experiencing that as a result of a fetal alcohol exposure or not. There are many different ways that you could develop autism spectrum disorder. So we thought because of the difficulty in diagnosing kids with this syndrome, maybe the use of microRNA measures would be useful for that. So microRNA, let me just back up a, a little bit. It's a new class of molecule. Does that mean it's everywhere in our body, it's in the bloodstream, or wh where, where is it? That's a fantastic question. So microRNAs we didn't know about when I was going through college, and uh, when most people who are doing research right now were going through college. They were really only discovered in the early 90s, and it was discovered in research involving worms. It took about a decade before people started realizing that these microRNAs were present in just about every organism on Earth, that the microRNAs, in fact, were present in the genomes of uh, every species that they went looking, with the exception, perhaps, of some bacteria. And these microRNAs have the ability to regulate the expression of more than half the genes in the genome. So we used to think that it was a pretty simple process to go from the DNA to the RNA to the protein in cells. And what this realization of the existence of microRNAs clearly established was that that's much too simple, that microRNAs actually dictate whether an RNA turns into a protein and therefore much more directly tied to the cellular phenotype if you will. In answer to the second part of your question, microRNAs are made in every cell in the body. They're made normally, they're required for cell development, they're required for cell division, cell reproduction, they're required for every biological process that you can imagine. In my case, uh, the interest of, of my own research in microRNAs, they're definitely required for normal brain function. And they are released by cells and they travel in every biofluid of the body. So microRNAs are thought to potentially be a molecular endocrine system that was, until recently, completely unrecognized. Wow, that's a new horizon. Just seems like a wide open. So uh, the changes that you would see in cerebrospinal fluid, it would make sense that you would also be able to see those in saliva. It's another body fluid, right? Well, it's true. There are changes that you can detect in uh, different microRNAs are, are found in different biofluids. But there are some changes that you can detect in uh, multiple biofluids because they share some of the same microRNA mm -hmm. composition. The microRNAs that are found in a biofluid are released there from cells that are either involved in synthesizing or secreting that biofluid, or potentially, they, in the case of saliva, for example, they may be released by nerves that actually innervate the salivary glands themselves. And so in terms of the autism work that we were interested in um, spearheading, we decided early on that we were going to move away from trying to collect blood in children who had autism spectrum disorder and instead try to look at saliva. And that really opened up our eyes a great deal to all of the work that, that has come since then. Did the, you move away from blood to saliva because it's easier to get a saliva sample from a child? 
it is the easiest biofluid um, that you could possibly obtain from a child. Yes. Okay. Um, and my colleague, uh, Steve Hicks, has actually completed parent surveys of which biofluid that they would most like to see their child um, contribute to research studies. And far and away, parents are the most agreeable with having a saliva sample. So our process in our initial uh, studies looking at autism um, was very educational and informative. We learned we can quickly get saliva samples from these children with autism, and we can measure several hundred microRNAs simultaneously in their saliva. And in the autism work, we can relate these to neurodevelopmental function, brain um, abilities of the, the related to social behavior and play and language and communication, sort of the normal brain function landscape. All of these things show some relation to the microRNA levels that we were measuring. Interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Associate Professor Frank Middleton of Upstate Medical University about a new way to identify concussions. So let's talk a little about concussions because they seem to be sort of a challenge for everyone. I've seen estimates that more than 2 million children and adolescents experience concussions every year, and they're somewhat challenging to diagnose, uh, to treat, to know how long to treat. Um, so what's the current state of when a child comes in with a head injury and a concussion may be suspected? What do you, what do, you do from there? That's an excellent question. So I became very interested in concussion research for two reasons. One, if a child experiences perinatal um, head trauma, and it damages part of the brain called the cerebellum that I've done a fair amount of research on. It turns out that that child, and you can consider this a, a type of prolonged post-concussive syndrome, that child who experiences that type of concussion is a 30-fold increased risk of developing autism spectrum disorder. So For, for life. For life. And the reason we believe that the risk is so elevated is because there are developing connections between the back of the brain that would have been injured in this case and the front of the brain where language and communication and social function are actually going to develop more in the future. And when these connections are damaged and disrupted, whether it's uh, an impact injury or a twisting injury or something like that, then that whole system doesn't develop normally. The brain is not an, an island. No part of the brain operates in isolation. The brain requires connections between areas that are located some distance apart. Concussion absolutely interferes with these, the communication across these pathways. So you're right, concussion is at a near epidemic proportion. And uh, in the U.S., every year, about 1% of Americans will experience concussion, and more than half of these are ex experienced in, in children, the pediatric population. So walking into my lab every day, I would walk past the new, newly established um, concussion research center at SUNY Upstate. And I really had always wanted to, to merge my interest in autism and what I knew about the risk factors uh, for autism that included concussion research with getting into uh, 
um, the microRNA measurement potentially as a biomarker for concussion. So I started a series of conversations with Brian Rieger, who's a researcher and clinician at Upstate and, and the director of the concussion center. And this led us to think about whether what we'd been doing in autism, what we'd been doing in alcohol abuse, um, could be applied to the study of concussion. And initially our work in concussion focused on adults because we had access to a lot of samples uh, where we knew athletes, in this case they were mixed martial arts fighters, had experienced a concussion. And they had already had research um, in place where they examined the functional state of these mixed martial arts fighters prior to them stepping in the, the octagon and then immediately after and then at days and weeks following. And so we took the same time points that they were using for functional assessments and we just went back and we measured the serum and we measured the saliva of those fighters and we realized that the microRNA patterns in the saliva and the serum as well were very predictive of the injury, the severity of the injury, and the course of recovery. And this research was constantly uh, being discussed among our research group, which included Steve Hicks at Hershey Penn State. And Steve um, initiated studies down there in their pediatric concussion center very much trying to parallel what we had been doing in the adult population in our athletes. They didn't have the benefit of looking prior to an injury because in their population they were only looking after the child had shown up for treatment at the concussion center. But whether you're a child or whether you're an adult who experiences a concussion, the, the bottom line is that two things are very difficult to predict. One, you don't know how severe the injury is. It's pretty easy to tell if somebody has experienced a concussion if you're at the sideline of a sporting event or you're watching somebody who's in, involved in a boxing match or an MMA fight. You can tell when they can't stand up normally, when they've had disorientation and, and problems in, in thinking. But you don't know how severe it is. And the second thing is, you don't know how long it's going to take them to recover. What we've been able to show in both the adult and the pediatric work is that these microRNAs are predictive of the severity of the injury as well as the time course of recovery. And this is very exciting, especially if you don't necessarily need to have a pre-injury measurement. And that's what Steve's work at Hershey Penn State has, has really shown, that even though they're only getting uh, the saliva measures a week or two weeks after the initial injury, they're able to tell which children will have uh, prolonged post-concussive syndrome. Uh, this is fascinating, but we're running out of time. Um, just tell me quickly, how soon till we have this in the hospital emergency department? That's a great question. We are definitely trying to do everything we can to create something that's as simple as a strep test swab. It could be used in a physician's office or certainly a concussion center to be able to come up with a definitive prediction about the diagnosis and the prognosis to really help these kids 
get back to school or help adults get back to their job and help inform the treatment. Very interesting. My guest has been Upstate Scientist Frank Middleton talking about concussion diagnosis. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate, HealthLink on Air. Stem cells in a 3D printer are making bones on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Jason Horton, an assistant professor of both orthopedic surgery and cell and developmental biology at Upstate Medical University, and Pranav Soman, an assistant professor of biomedical and chemical engineering at Syracuse University, are working together to create a more natural alternative to the metallic implants that are used today to replace diseased and damaged bones. They're using 3D printing to develop polymer-based biodegradable implants, and they're both here today to tell us more about their exciting research. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. So this seems like we're in the age of the Jetsons if we're to the point where if we need, say, a knee replacement or something, that we can build one with a 3D printer and use it. How close are we to that? Well, I think it's still a long way on the horizon, but we're definitely chipping away at it. And so, you know, maybe... 10 to 15 years is not an unreasonable expectation. Um, right now we're working at a very basic level trying to work out the technology um, end of it and the manufacturing end of it. And that's where Pranav really comes in to uh, bring his expertise. Um, and I work more on the bone and cell biology side. So it sounds like a really good collaboration, people from both different sciences. Yes, I think it is. Uh, it has been fantastic. We have been working on this for the past year or so. And, uh, yeah, I bring the expertise of uh, printing, uh, I guess, bioplastics and biogels where you mix cells with gels and try to, I guess, grow bone in a, in a structural cage. And it has been fantastic uh, so far. So how did you come up just with the idea of using a 3D printer to build, like, it's the scaffolding, right? And then of adding human cells to that. How did you come up with the concept? Well, I think the idea has been out there for a long time, but the technology hasn't really been available until fairly recently. Um, now, I've only been here at Upstate for a little over a year and a half now, and one of the first people that I met when I came to Upstate was Pranav, who, you know, introduced himself, uh, you know, very shortly after I got here, and he says, you know, I have this great technology. Do you think this might have an application in some of the work that you're doing and some of your research interests? And you know, one of the big problems in orthopedics in general is how to help bone heal better to become stronger and restore function. And so with my background in cell biology and, and bone stem cell biology specifically, I, you know, I've always had this idea that maybe if we could activate stem cells in some sort of way to help improve bone healing, that would be fantastic. But one of the barriers is how do you get those stem cells to stay in place? You can't just inject them because they're sort of a fluid and you know, a bone needs to have some mechanical strength. 
And so Pranav comes and brings this technology where he can essentially create a rigid structure in any shape you, you, you want. Um, in our case, we're hopeful that we can use CT imaging or MRI imaging to design these new bone structures and so really make it a patient-specific uh, graft unit that we can create. So that's the long-term goal. But um, as far as bringing it from the research side, it's been just a really great uh, collaboration of you know, really different fields coming together on a common goal. So, um, Pranav, tell me about 3D printing and, and, this, and polymer that's a plastic, right? Yeah. So how does that work? If you're working on a scaffolding, you have to draw? Right. So I think uh, so. the bio 3D uh, printing is very, very similar to normal 3D uh, printing, which we hear often, right? Where <clears throat> the idea is that you have a three-dimensional model which you create uh, either by some kind of modeling software or you can get that from CT scans, MRI scans, things like that. And you take that model, you slice it up into uh, scans or uh, 2D sort of uh, tool paths and you can move a stage, a very uh, precise stage in XYZ or three dimensions according to the, those paths. And you can basically stack uh, these slices on top of each other layer by layer and then we basically can recreate or create this 3D uh, structure based on the scan which we have. So the bio comes only, it's exactly the same thing as 3D uh, printing but the bio part comes where we can either use bioplastics which are approved by the FDA or you can use some kind of living cells mixed in a soft gel, which is compatible and things like that. But essentially it is the exact same thing. Okay. So, so go ahead. I was going to say the analogy that I like to use is it's kind of like building a house in that um, we're building the framework and that's, that's the 3D printing unit that Pranav comes in. So the structure, the shape of the unit that we're trying to assemble is built by the 3D printing process. And then my part is to come in and, and, sort of bring the cells and, and hydrogel that Pranav has also worked um, extensively with and use that gel full of uh, stem cells to sort of fill in the spaces or you know to to fill in the foundation of those walls that were built by the 3D printer. So these are stem cells as a, these are not bone yet. These They're not are, yet bone okay. exactly exactly so we're working on um, identifying new sources of these bone stem cells. Um, and it's important to point out that these stem cells are present in the bone marrow and a few other tissues throughout, um, throughout your life, and they're what um, are activated to cause bone to heal. They're stimulated to produce bone healing. Um, and so we're looking for ways to activate those cells or to isolate them and sort of instruct them to become bone cells while housed in this hydrogel 3D printed um, structural unit. And so that's a, that's a real hot topic, but also a real challenge in identifying those cells, producing enough of them to make a, a functional bone unit, and then giving them the instructions to become a bone cell. And so that's really been you know, the focus of my, my training and my research is how to instruct a relatively primitive cell to become a bone cell. Okay. And relatively primitive, would the cells come from like a cord blood or... So that's, that's a, a very new technology that um, we've just started looking into um, with a, a grant from the Cord Blood Center here at Upstate, um, where we're looking at, so these stem cells um, in general are called mesenchymal stem cells. And so they're stem cells in the sense that they're multipotent. And by multipotent, 
what I mean is that they have the capacity to become several different types of mature tissue cells. So in the case of these mesenchymal stem cells, they can become cartilage cells which line the joints and provide sort of a frictionless surface. They can become bone cells and form the mineralized component of bone, but they can also become fat cells which live inside the bone marrow and they have some really interesting but poorly understood physiologic functions. Um, so suffice it to say, we're looking at ways to identify these mesenchymal stem cells um, traditionally, and most of the work has been done looking at bone marrow, but now also having cord blood um, as a sort of novel source that's readily available um, and will probably help us with a lot of the immune rejection complications that might be had if we were to use stem cells from one person and try to implant them in another person. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air talking about new ways to produce bone products to replace diseased or damaged bones in the human body with Syracuse University Assistant Professor Pranov Soman and Upstate Assistant Professor Jason Horton. Um, Pranov, the, the scaffolding the, the, uh, that's made with the uh, 3D printer, what happens to that once it's in the body? Does it stay? Yeah, so there are various <coughs> sort of types of scaffolding uh, that is based on the bioplastic we choose. Uh, in our work, we have primarily worked with the FDA-approved plastic called the polycaprolactone PCL. And the way it works is, so we use, so 3D printing has lots of various uh, techniques which can be used to make these sliced 3D uh, constructs. And what the one which we use uh, with PCL is what's called an extrusion-based approach, where we basically extrude this, we make spools or plastic sort of spools of these PCL, and then we extrude those spools through a, a heater, which sort of semi-melts it, and then we have a stage, which is again controlled by a 3D scan, and it's moved in XYZ, and we can make this a 3D gauge. And this PCL, it can last, basically you can tune the properties of how fast or slow they can degrade if you implant them inside the body. But typically the amount of time is about eight months to a year and a half. And so the hope is that the cells during that time would be able to take take over. Exactly. So so that, that provides, the, the scaffold structure provides stability during that time that the bone cells... Um, are differentiating, or I should say the stem cells are differentiating into bone cells um, and then start building new bone tissue on top of it. And I think a really important point is that the PCL is bioresorbable. And by that, it means it's slowly degraded over time and absorbed in a non-toxic fashion in, in the, um, by the body. And so this, a similar plastic is used for things like um, resorbable sutures. Say if you were to have an operation, get some stitches, and rather than take them out, they just sort of dissolve away fairly quickly. And there's other um, devices that are used in orthopedics specifically as far as um, what are called staples or nails that um, are used in surgical procedures to hold pieces of tissue together, especially in reconstruction reconstructive procedures. So it's a, it's a, the biocompatibility of PCL is really well understood and characterized. Um, and so that's why we've chosen to go with that as our starting material. So how far along are you? Is this being tested? So we have, uh, I mean, we can sort of print these hybrid uh, scaffolds, which is basically, again, the PCL cage, uh, and which is embedded with the stem cells with gels. And we have tested, we have started to implant those in uh, animals, uh, and we have some exciting uh, results uh, so far, but it is still in the preliminary stage. Very early. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And it, so we're, you know, we're trying to incorporate a couple of things to bring back the building a house analogy. So um, one of the important things to helping bone heal is to establish a vascular circuit through the bone tissue. And so some of the really exciting engineering work that Pranav has been doing is working on ways to build vascular channels or, again, to bring back the house analogy pipes. Um, and so we're working on ways to create these pipes through this 3D matrix in addition to the rigid structure. Um, and then um, take some vascular stem cells that line the inside of the blood vessels and are really important for communication with the blood cells, or excuse me, with the bone cells. Um, and sort of build those into this um, bone units so that we can um, have essentially a readily perfusable um, bone graft structure that can um, supply has a blood supply and can uh, bring nutrients and clear waste to the cells within the bone construct that we're creating. Um, and then we just recently uh, submitted a paper, um, again, bringing back the analogy of a house where we've um, put nanowires into the hydrogel matrix um, for the purpose of conducting um, various bioelectric signals through the bone matrix. So we're really looking at it as we're building the structure, we're putting in the plumbing, and now we're putting in the wiring too. This is so fascinating, and bo both of you are relatively young. Did you imagine or dream about this in, I don't know, in high school when you're coming up and thinking about what you want to do with your life? Did you? No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, my background is uh, like more engineering, and so okay. I always used to like to build things, but I was working on cars and engines and things like mm -hmm. that, and uh, over the years I have transformed into working on bio uh, applications. And you, Jason? So, yeah, so I, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess to, to wind the clock back, I, I had visions of becoming a high school teacher at one point. Um, and then through college, you know, just different classes, I got really excited about um, anthropology, um, which is, I think, where my interest in, in the skeleton started, um, but also in linguistics. And so I was, I think, through college, I was sort of all over the place. And then um, after graduating, I worked for a few years as a, as a research technician and, um, you know, that was the time when I really fell in love with the idea of being, you know, number one, just being a scientist and having my own project, um, but that I had the opportunity to, to do my graduate work in bone biology and skeletal development. Um, and so that was really exciting, just studying the, the process of how um, bones develop from embryonic life and then how they're maintained um, as we age. Um, but to say I ever thought that I'd be building a new bone essentially from scratch um, really has only come into my mind as a, as a reality, um, as even a possibility in the last year really since meeting Pranav. Wow, interesting. It was so fascinating and I hope both of you will come back as your research progresses and um, kind of keep us updated. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air uh, with Assistant Professors Pranav Soman from Syracuse University and Jason Horton from Upstate Medical University. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Goodbye, Paul, or a spontaneous hug. Well, folks, I came to work recently to hear that a friend from decades ago, who I'd fallen out of touch with, but who then became a colleague for another decade, was hospitalized suddenly. I emailed one of his best friends and asked what was up. 
unexplained pain. They're checking him out. Okay, thanks. When I didn't see him a week later, I eat again. Any news? Yeah, not good. Pancreatic cancer. Whoa. Doesn't have long to live. How long? Maybe a few weeks. Whoa. Is he taking visitors? The family's asked for no visitors right now. A few days later, I eat again. Visitors yet? No. I mulled this one over. I didn't want to miss a chance to see him. Is this one of those rules that it's okay to break? After all, I knew him even before he got married and had a family. I decided to walk over and poke my head in the door, hoping he'd wave me in. I'm looking for his room, and a nurse asks if she can help me. I'm looking for Paul's room. She says, he's asleep. From how you said that, it sounds like he's never going to wake up again. Is that right? Yes. Okay if I just look in and say goodbye? Sure. I looked in. Yeah. He was all IVs and hoses. Gone. Too late. Standing there, I remembered a few months before we were chatting in the hall, reminiscing on wonderful times long ago, connected to some loving feelings that had gone unexpressed. Suddenly, I had an impulse to let him know that with a hug, something we'd never done before. We hugged. It felt just right. He said, quite a journey we've had, Rich. Yeah, thanks, Paul. We smiled at each other and said goodnight. Just in the nick of time. I'm Rich, glad to be alive, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, an increased rate of autism diagnoses in an area that has aerial mosquito spraying. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A pediatrician and researcher at Penn State who graduated from Upstate Medical University has some interesting research showing that rates of diagnosis of neurodevelopmental delay were higher in a region that conducted airborne pesticide spraying to kill mosquitoes. Dr. Stephen Hicks is talking with us today by telephone to tell us more about his work. Thank you, Dr. Hicks. Oh, thank you for having me. So this was research you uh, got started in um, during your time at Upstate, is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, In my final year of pediatric residency, uh, I got the idea uh, to do this study based off of uh, some published work that came out of California looking at um, possible connections between pesticide use and rates of autism. Okay. Now the paper that I saw... um, it describes an area near our regional medical center that employs yearly 
aerial pyrethroid pesticide applications to combat mosquito-borne encephalitis. Are we, we're That's talking correct. about the Cicero Swamp? Yes. Okay. Yep. And, and it's not just encephalitis, but other mosquito-borne diseases as well, right? Sure. The pesticide targets uh, mosquito populations that carry a variety of diseases, but the real concern are the ones that cause uh, brain-damaging infections, things like West Nile and Eastern Equine encephalitis. Okay. So tell me how the study was done. So the study, I think probably uh, first just to give some background about how it came about, um, the study that came out of uh, California in 2015 uh, showed a link between a particular type of pesticide called pyrethroids and rates of autism in that region. And as I was reading the study, um, I had realized that the same type of pesticide was used in the Syracuse area over the Cicero Swamp to uh, combat mosquito-borne infections. So I thought we had a unique opportunity to potentially either corroborate and provide some evidence bolstering the claims from that study or even maybe refute uh, what they had found. Um, so we looked in the regions that were within a two-mile radius of the aerial spraying that's done in the Cicero Swamp, and that distance was uh, chosen specifically because the authors in the California study had shown that to be the kind of critical distance that you needed to live within uh, pesticide exposure. And then we picked a control area on the other side of the greater Syracuse region that had similar socioeconomic and demographic variables to the people that lived there, similar distance to the medical center. And we looked at rates of developmental delay diagnoses among the children that lived in the area without uh, the aerial exposure to pesticides and in the area that did have aerial exposures to pesticides. Interesting. So, um, and what, what years were you looking at? So the study included um, sort of a five-year range from 2010 to 2015. Okay, so very current. Yeah. So what, um, um, what were your findings? Well, among, there's about 20,000 children living in the region where the pesticides are applied via airplane, um, and about 40,000 children living in the area without the pesticide application. And the rates of autism were about 1.3 times higher in the area that was receiving aerial pesticide application. So to, to put that in sort of more interpretable numbers, if there was 1,000 kids in the area that had aerial pesticide exposure, 19 of them had autism. And if there are 1,000 kids in the area without the exposure, 15 had autism or developmental delay. Oh, okay. So it's not a groundbreaking difference. It's a statistically significant difference. But uh, but it doesn't sound as alarming when you put it in those numbers. Exactly, yeah. So, And, and that makes sense. We know that autism and developmental delay are largely controlled by genetic factors. We know that from studies of twins. So if you take two identical twins and one has autism, the other has over a 90% chance of having autism. That's because they share the same genes. But in some cases, so in 10% of those identical twins, they don't both have autism. Okay. So there is a role for environmental factors there. I think what you're likely seeing in cases of autism and developmental delay 
our children who are set up or at risk for it because of their underlying genetics, and something in their um, either in the womb or after delivery in their environment um, sort of is that extra push uh, alongside their genetic basis that drives them to have a developmental delay. But the genetic basis in your population would be similar in the two areas that you compared, right? Theoretically, yeah. We don't have, we didn't do genetic studies on any of these children. They're all actually de-identified, so we don't know any of their names or medical record numbers. It's basically just a a population-based study. And Um, and do you know if you captured all of the the kids that were diagnosed? So that's another limitation to this study. So it relies on um, a child having come to the SUNY Upstate Medical University for care, uh, so and then having a diagnosis in their medical record. Oh. So the that approach is, has some strengths to it. So one is that if the diagnosis is there, we can be fairly confident that it's an accurate diagnosis because it's entered by a physician or clinician. Um, the other way to do this type of study would be to call people on the phone. Then you're relying on um, parental or teacher uh, report or caregiver report of developmental status. So you'd get a you'd catch more people with that second approach, but the accuracy of the diagnosis might not be quite mm-hmm. as high. okay. All right, and then um, you looked at obviously the pesticide spraying, but could there be other? differences, environmental differences in these two regions? Could there be something else to blame for this? or, or Yeah, not? absolutely. Um, so we used lots of fancy statistical methods to try and control for all the other factors that are implicated in rates of autism and developmental delay diagnosis, things like poverty rates, uh, population density, uh, race and sex, uh, prematurity rates, birth rates, um, all those things we did our best to control for. But at the end of the day, there's a multitude of factors that contribute to a child's environment, right? And so probably the most um, easily identifiable one here is mosquitoes. So we can't be sure in sort of a chicken or egg type scenario whether it's the pesticide exposure that's bumping up the risk of developmental delay slightly, or is it the mosquito exposure? Because we know that things like Zika virus, right, which has emerged in the last two years or so, does cause developmental delays and problems with brain development. No one has studied this yet with West Nile virus. There's no, West Nile virus, if it causes encephalitis, is devastating to a child's brain. But there can be subclinical infections. So an infection with West Nile virus may not always cause encephalitis. It might cause just fatigue and a low-grade fever um, and perhaps some other low-grade symptoms, but we don't know if that leads to developmental delay here. Well, interesting. I've got some more questions, but this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Hicks, a pediatrician and researcher at Penn State who graduated from Upstate Medical University. He has some exciting research showing that neurodevelopmental delay diagnosis rates or autism diagnosis rates were higher in a region with aerial pesticide application. So you found some statistically significant um, differences are they enough for people to act on? In other words, is there a reason for people to be concerned? 
No, and I, I definitely want to stress that um, here. I, I think these results are certainly not large enough um, or significant enough that people need to uh, pull up stakes and move out of the area uh, or that we need to, as a community, be abandoning pesticide use practices. They're important for um, preventing these really devastating encephalitis uh, illnesses that mosquitoes carry. So I want to make that really clear. Because your, your work does not say that pesticides cause autism. No, it is right. not a causative study. Okay. Uh, all it shows is a potential relationship between an area where pesticides are used in a different sort of way and slightly higher rates of developmental delay diagnoses. But I, what I think the, the study does sort of, why it's important, is this makes physiologic sense. Right? These chemicals are designed to attack the nervous system in mosquitoes. So we need to be thinking about, as scientists, is it possible that they could be affecting the developing nervous system of our children? And this needs to be continued to look, be looked at and studied. Um, it should be looked at in animal models so we can actually test and see if this is causing uh, problems with brain development. Uh, we need to bring in these uh, children who live in these areas perhaps and have developmental delay and look to see if they're bioaccumulating these types of pesticides um, within their bodies. That would be one thing to look at. Um, probably the easiest and most simple place to start is the public health department recommends that people stay indoors for up to an hour following these sprayings each summer. They request that people close outdoor vents of window unit air conditioners, remove ch outdoor children's toys, cover gardens. And to my knowledge, I don't know if any of these people have looked at whether these requests um, or recommendations are being studied or not. So that would be a good place to start. Certainly. Or if, if families are actually following those guidelines. Right, yeah. So I think we, the guidelines are out there. Whether or not they're getting to people and people are following them, uh, we, should, we should just start there probably and make sure that that's the case. Well, are there potentially um, safer or more effective methods of mosquito control? Um, well, after the Zika outbreak in the last uh, two years, there's been a, a big push for alternative methods of mosquito control. One of them that I'm aware of is um, to introduce a strain of mosquitoes that would basically outbreed the type that carry Zika virus. I, I don't know if uh, those genetically modified mosquitoes are also able to outbreed and um, compete with the type in the area that cause West Nile virus and Eastern equine encephalitis. Um, and certainly introducing genetically modified mosquitoes has its own set of issues. Sure. But um, that's potentially an, one way that you could sort of combat this problem without using pesticides, but I, I think we're a long way from, from that as a potential injunction. So for now, probably following the public health department's recommendations and doing our best to minimize exposure to the pesticides is probably our best bet. So that's, um, yeah, for now, that's what families need to do. Um, make sure that they stay indoors and, and follow the guidelines when the spraying does take place. Right. Okay. Well, I thank you for your uh, 
going over this study with us. I appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Hicks. He's an Upstate alum who is a pediatrician and a researcher at Penn State. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Valerie Wofield makes beautiful sonnets. They are technically intricate and contain worlds of controlled emotion and deep passion. The listener returns to them and is rewarded each time with new understanding. In the last issue of The Muse, Wofield sent us two sonnets linked together united by the speaker who describes an exquisite confinement. Here is Valerie Wolfeld's seclusion. One, restraints. A room painted the color of roses to calm me. No alms for my beggar bowl of palms. Nosegay in the leather cuffs. How tired my arms in the held roses pose. Teared and tied, espaliered, spiraled as stars. Psalm and rosary whispered in the next room over, beads bound, fingers touch at pulse, and little scar held in the leather cuffs like the cut rose without ground, doomed to tideless waters and vase. Cinnabar too bright. I have overdosed on roses, on the mess and mass of roses sugar spun, eaten one by one from lover's fingers. Composure by rose, impossible calm, one dozen roses or a singleton. Every rose dries to a petaled skeleton. What roses my bony wrists in straps have worn. Milieu. A room painted blue as a king's tiled tomb to calm me. Seize the celadon sky on a ming jar. Lay me glazed quartz and copper in this room. Little pearly moonflower, I'll climb the limb of viny air. One blossom open for one night, then closed again in light. Let the ceilings blue prophesy the cue of morning. Timed bitter right, the coffee machine clicks on in the empty milieu. A room the color of new roses did not warm me. And a room of blue, ancient as Abusir, did not cool me. Little moon, the womb of mother could not hold me. Great heirlooms cracked crystal, mother did not scold me. And if illness is the color of blue and roses, and if cure too is rumored out of fiance blue and reposed roses, been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll hear how circumcision is related to the human papillomavirus and how heart attack symptoms differ in men and women. If you missed any of today's show, 
Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.